Okay, good morning, Ocean City Church. How you guys doing? Woo! Okay, my name is Mike. Uh, I'm one of the leaders here at Ocean City Church. Uh, and I'm going to kick off today talking to you about my car. Oh, I love cars. Who's, who here is a car guy? Anybody loves cars, like does all this stuff? Okay, I am not a car guy. I could care a lick about it. I will tell you about my car. It's a 2003 Toyota Camry. Mm. I had to look it up. It's an SE sedan. I didn't know that. I had to look that one up. Um, it's uh, four doors. I had to look that up too. No, just kidding. Uh, and it's got 230,000 miles. This thing never stops running. I'm waiting for the day when it just doesn't crank. I can finally get a new car, but it just keeps running. It never doesn't run. I don't understand. Um, I've owned it for 11 years, um, and within four months of me owning it, the check engine light comes on. Does everybody see that check engine light? You know what I'm talking about? Flashes up on the dash, a little sense of terror in your like, belly. It's like, what is going on? So uh, I took it to AutoZone, right, because that's what you do. I don't know. And, uh, and what they do, if you don't know, you know, they like plug this little computer into your car, and I guess it talks to your car's computer. I don't know how this works, but... It reads off some codes, and it says, okay, this is what's wrong. Here's what maybe you need to replace or fix or try to diagnose it. And, uh, and they came back and said, oh, it's your O2 sensors. And I was like, well, how much is that going to cost? And they're like, 200 bucks. This was 10 years ago. I did not have a lot of money 10 years ago. And I was like, well, will the car still run? And they're like, oh, yeah, it'll still run. I was like, all right, well, then we're done here. I'm out. Um, that check engine light is still on. Those O2 sensors have still not been replaced. I don't know. And the car's running great, so I don't know. Um, but, uh, so we're back in James, okay? I know we've kind of been in and out with our guest speakers. We're finally back. Um, and, uh, and I do that intro because I think in some ways James is like a, a check engine light of a book, okay? It, uh, it, it comes on, you, you know, your engine light comes on and says, something's wrong. We don't know what yet, but something's wrong. You should investigate more, Okay, and that's kind of what, what James is. You know, James is writing us to say how you live is maybe a check engine light for your faith. Okay, he lays out how Christians ought to live. Uh, and if we are not living that way, maybe some more investigation is needed. Um, so, and, and we always have to remember um, that James is assuming the gospel of grace, right? He's not like, oh, you got to make sure you're doing all the right stuff or else God's going to be mad. That's not his approach. It's a free gift of grace. Um, so a couple weeks ago, Dave finished chapter one. So we're finally on chapter two. We've been in James all summer. Chapter two, finally made it. Two out of five. Okay, so um, let's go ahead and read our passage. This is James chapter two, verses one through 13. We're gonna read NIV version. There it is. So my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? 
Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. So speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over justice. Yikes, buckle up, here we go. Man, James, seriously. Okay, so today we are going to look at three questions today. So first, do we discriminate? That's kind of what this is about. We'll dig into that a little bit. And next, we're going to talk about why, why do we love instead? And lastly, how do we love instead? So do we discriminate? Why do we love instead? And then how do we love instead? So this is a, this is a powerful and challenging text. Um, I think today, um, I'm hoping that we're going to get challenged, maybe a little uncomfortable, I predict. Um, but this, is, this exact passage is one of the reasons why we preach the way that we do, through books of the Bible. Well, I don't need that, don't worry. Um, and uh, uh, we, we could easily, if we wanted to, just ignore this and skip this, right? This is a little uncomfortable. Let's just skip this. Yet, um, uh, we really want, when it comes down to it, we want the Word of God to read us, not us to read the Word of God, right? So to skip it, you might be skipping something that your soul really needs, even though it might be uncomfortable. Um, so, so we're going to dig in. Here we go. So our passage talks specifically about discriminating against the poor, but it's not too much of a biblical leap to extrapolate that to mean really discrimination of any kind. You know, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, and oh, by the way, everyone's your neighbor. And so, um, so we're going to be talking about uh, discrimination today. So that's fun. Um, so, let's see. In our country over the past year, it's been a, a rocky one in a lot of ways. A lot of stuff's kind of bubbled up, um, you know, in a, and maybe in a great way, really forced us to kind of reckon with some injustice that we've been seeing uh, in our country, right? The murder of George Floyd just brought a lot of critical things all to the surface and kind of just forced us to look at them and decide what do we want to do with this. So at, at the time when all this was going down, the berries, we were living in Texas for two months. I was super kind of disconnected and all this stuff kind of bubbled up. Um, and and the, the, the racial injustice that was coming up is not something that I was familiar with. And so in a lot of ways, I just kind of like checked out. It's like, I don't know what's going on or what to do. I'm just gonna not really pay attention. It made me uncomfortable. But it's passages like this that though it make, make us uncomfortable, um, I have a responsibility to the God of the universe to talk about it, even though I feel like, for me, it's not something that I feel like I've totally figured out yet or like I'm an expert in. And yet, so it's not justification for skipping stuff like this. Um, so the thing that I want to kind of wade into is... Uh, kind of my initial reaction 
to maybe this passage and especially kind of the stuff that was happening a lot last summer is my initial reaction was like, well, I'm not racist. I don't know what everyone else's problem is. Maybe that's something that just white people say. I don't know. But, um, but that's the question that God was putting on my heart. It's like, well, okay, is there a problem? And I think what this passage is bringing up, and the, which is our first question, is, well, well, maybe I'm not that, but do I discriminate? Am I part of this discrimination? I don't know. Um, so we're going to wade in. And I'm going to pray for us because I need it. And we'll jump in. How fun. God, thank you for the beauty and power of your word. I pray that uh, you would surround us with grace today and that your Holy Spirit would uh, convict us and comfort us at the same time. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the NIV translation for this section is called Favoritism Forbidden. Uh, The ESV calls it the sin of partiality. Now, I'm not a linguist by any means. There's all kinds of words that like float around a lot. So I'm going to kind of lump all these together for us today. So things like favoritism, partiality, preference, discrimination, bias, and prejudice. I'm just going to define them all to be viewing, treating, speaking of one culture, race, class, group, person over another. Treating people differently based on their outward appearance their condition, or what group they might belong to. Now, something that was interesting that I started kind of learning about this week as I was preparing for the talk was something called bias. And like all of you psychology majors, you probably know all about this, but I'm an engineering major. This was new to me. Um, So uh, it was fascinating, like all of the, the testing and research that's been done to try to figure out just like how we think, you know, what are like our default modes of thinking. And I'll highlight a couple of these that I think are interesting. So one is confirmation bias. And it refers to the brain's tendency, this is what they say, to search for or focus on information that supports what someone already believes, while ignoring facts that go against those beliefs despite their relevance. I think, I mean, my, the example I can think of is like the echo chamber. A lot of times social media is just like an echo chamber, right? It's way easier to talk to people that agree with you and maybe like blow up at somebody that doesn't, but it's a lot nicer to kind of be in that echo chamber uh, confirmation bias. Another one, the fundamental attribution error. That sounds fancy. But they talk about this. They say that we are more likely to attribute someone else's actions to their personality rather than taking into account the situation they are facing. However, rarely do we make this error when analyzing our own behavior. And I think of like, Someone who, like, is an abuser physically, verbally. That's a horrible, terrible thing that should not be happening. But um, you, you could approach that and say, well, they're just a horrible person, right? But, you know, the statistics show us that very often those people were abused very young. And that it's so, like there's, there's, there's some situational stuff in there that's kind of caused some of that sometimes. Um, but to just label someone as a horrible person, part of their personality, we give ourselves lots of excuses, um, and that's kind of a bias that we deal with. Um, And then the last one that I want to hang out with for a little bit is called implicit bias. And it's basically when we have attitudes towards people or associate stereotypes with them without our conscious knowledge, also called unconscious bias. And this is one I want to sit in for a little bit. So like I said earlier, like as I've been wrestling with this and continue to wrestle with this whole thing, 
Um, I've never considered myself a racist or a hater of poor people um, or a discriminator of those different than me, but there's this, there's this thing that maybe unconsciously there's partiality being shown. And I think sometimes when I really sit down and think about just how I live my daily life, I can see little glimpses of that kind of pop up. Um, one of the uh, psychologists says this. They said, psychologists once believed that only bigoted people use stereotypes. Now the study of unconscious bias is revealing the unsettling truth. We all use stereotypes all the time without knowing it. We, may have, we have met the enemy of equality, and the enemy is us. So I love that at the end, the enemy is us. What's, just as a quick aside, it's so, I love it when like scientists or researchers dig deep enough and they come across this new truth that is actually a truth that the Bible's been talking about for centuries, right? The enemy is us. Of course it is, right? Sin has distorted our world. Um, the sin of favoritism and partiality, absolutely. It's distorted things. We are the enemy. Now, Maybe you're wondering, I don't know, not me. It's not, I'm not that bad. Just wait a second. <laughs> so let, let's talk about, in, uh, in verse 9, James brings up what is really one of the most kind of like universally accepted teachings of the Bible, the love your neighbor as yourself. Golden rule, everyone agrees this is a great idea, right? Religious, non-religious, everyone. You know, treat somebody like you want to be treated. Pretty simple. But I think it's really telling of our hearts when all of us, uh, immediately ask the question, well, let's, let's make sure we define this. So who is my neighbor, right? Surely, I feel like we're going to God and saying, surely you don't mean everyone, because maybe inherently we know that there's some people that we are not interested in loving. You know, when Jesus was posed this question, uh, uh, he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? Everybody's very familiar with that. And reaffirmed that, yes, everyone is your neighbor without exception. We are to love everyone as ourselves. And what does that mean? You know, we are to meet everyone's needs with the same urgency we give ourselves. Love with the same grace we give ourselves. Give people the benefit of the doubt just like we give ourselves. So as we kind of sit in this, I guess I want to know just like, how, how are you... How are you doing with that? How are you doing with this loving everyone as yourself without partiality? I think what's tough in our world that we see kind of creating is that there's all kinds of different people in different kinds of groups today. There's a lot of divisiveness and a lot of opportunity for partiality and favoritism. So let's, let's talk about a couple of these. So let's talk about political groups. So I don't necessarily care which political group you're part of, but how do you love the people in the other political group? Just whatever the opposite one is from you. Do you show partiality? Do you show them love? Does the cable news show you watch show partiality and love? Or is it more divisive and maybe even dehumanizing of the other side? What about... The LGBTQ community, how are we at loving them? Do we consider them? Do we engage? Or do we just ignore? 
right? If we had needs to love someone like ourselves, we don't ignore our own needs. So if it's everyone, do we ignore them? What about racial groups? Have you taken the time to understand the problems that America has with race, or have you just dismissed it? Has my whole intro, are you just like, I can't even believe we're talking about this at church, right? <clears throat> and then what about the poor? It's the focus of our passage for James. You know, do we treat someone differently based on how successful they appear? Do we seek out opportunities to help the poor? So, Jonathan Edwards, he was a famous pastor uh, during the Great Awakening, early 1700s. Um, also, I learned on Wikipedia this week, the grandfather of Aaron Burr, for all of you Hamilton fans. How about that? Very interesting. Um, so he gave a sermon in 1733 where basically there were or there was, uh, community people that need a lot of help in their city, Northampton, Massachusetts, and, uh, and he was getting lots of objections from people in his congregation. And so he kind of did this sermon addressing some of those objections. And remember, this is, this is over almost 300 years ago, right? So see if you recognize any of these excuses, either that we've made in our own heart or maybe from those you've talked to. So objection number one that he addressed, people were saying, well, these people are not desperate. Like the need isn't extreme, so they don't, they don't deserve help yet. So his answer to that was, well, do you wait to address your own needs until you're desperate? Really, instead, we, we act to stay away from desperation. We try to act as soon as possible so that we're not in that situation. Another objection that came up, I can't help anyone. I have nothing to spare. And his answer to that was, loving your neighbor takes sacrifice. We aren't bearing enough of the burden if we don't feel it. Another objection was, well, what if, the, what if this poor person was ungrateful or undeserving? And that was like a softball for Jonathan Edwards. He said, we, in light of God's grace, we are daily ungrateful, daily undeserving. Another one was, objection was, well, what if they, brought, they were brought to this poverty or this need by their own fault? I have thought this many times, full confession. Maybe you have too. Um, the thought of, I can't help them, they'll just squander it. I can't help them if they won't help themselves. Have you told your heart that? And what was interesting, the way he kind of unwrapped this is, uh, don't assume that everyone's got the same aptitude as you for managing their life, right? Um, we live in a fairly affluent area, at the beach, um, a lot of us got our stuff together, right? Um, not everyone is kind of born with that, or that comes naturally and easily. So sometimes, it's, sometimes it is their fault, sometimes it's not. But he said, imagine like if someone was blind, you know, and they just need help getting around to seeing. Imagine if people like this were, had some impaired eyesight in terms of managing their life or their money or anything. There's an impairment that they need help with. And then lastly, an objection was, what if their plight was due to sin, selfishness, or violent behavior? And, uh, and this is where he like left in kind of a loophole. He said, well, some people need to be held accountable. But then he comes right back and said, 
but could we not help their families or their children that are dependent on them, that are being affected by all of these poor decisions? Do we, or do we use that as an excuse to just like hit the eject button and move on to the next thing? So, this is all 300 years ago. Surely we've made lots of progress since this, right? I'm glad somebody laughed. I don't feel like we've made progress. My heart doesn't tell me that I've made progress. I've said all these things to myself before. So whatever novel reason we think we've come up with to not engage with the poor or the oppressed or the discriminated against, it's not new. Satan's up to all his old tricks, right? There's nothing new here. So whether the discrimination, favoritism is intentional or unintentional, we have a problem. The enemy of equality the enemy of seeing everyone as our neighbor worthy of help is us. The enemy is us. So my simple answer to question one, do we discriminate? Yes. Okay, great. That was easy. Um, okay. So, so, yikes. This is heavy. Thanks, Mike. What an uplifting sermon so far. So, so our next two questions, why do we love instead? How do we love instead? Now, before we get to the how, because if you're like me, I'm type A. I'm like, well, give me something to do. I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go do something. Let's go. Before we get there, we need to kind of back up a little bit, sidestep, and talk about the why. God has a particular view of things from which our actions are intended to grow. So what is, what is the lens that we need to see others through? What motivates us to love others, to love the poor, the oppressed, discriminated against. We're going to hit three quick theological reasons. Number one, we are made in the image of God. We've heard this before, maybe. We've been made in the image and likeness of God, it says in Genesis 126. So everyone in the world and everyone has ever been in the world is the handiwork of God. They've got a God's signature on them. Everyone represents God in a way, and therefore everyone has worth this is why everyone is a neighbor, according to Jesus. Now, this concept, this idea is what is behind the universal human rights. It's what's behind equality. It's what the Constitution writers had in mind when they said uh, that there are some rights that are self-evident, that we were all created equal and have unalienable rights. We are made in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. And here is where it gets sticky. So every single human being, no matter how much this image of God, this handiwork of God, no matter how much it has been marred by sin, by weakness, by sickness, by poverty. Now let that just sink in for a second. Because that part's nice. Image of God, everyone's got worth, wonderful. Okay, but no matter what, really? Yeah, so let's think about this. We're all image bearers. Gator fans, image bearers, obviously. That's an easy one. Seminole fans, begrudgingly, yes, fine. Image bearers of God. Those that like smooth peanut butter, yes, image bearers of God. Crunchy peanut butter, yeah, okay, image bearers of God. But let's, let's, uh, let's get in the weeds a little bit. Democrats, image bearers of God. Republicans, 
image bearers of God. Pro-vaccination people, image bearers of God. Anti-vaccination people, image bearers of God. Pro-mask, anti-mask, image bearers of God, all of us. The LGBTQ plus community, all image bearers of God, every single one. Murderers and rapists, image bearers of God. Antifa and white supremacists, image bearers of God. How does that sit with you? Those with mental disabilities, image bearers of God. Unborn children, image bearers of God. The poor and the homeless, image bearers of God. And those trapped in addiction are image bearers of God. All races, cultural groups, Facebook groups, religions, every single person is an image bearer of God. Yikes. And so here's the power here and why that's important. This is a quote from Wayne Grudem. He says, if we ever, oh, it's on the screen. There we go. If we ever deny our unique status in creation as God's only image bearers, we will soon begin to depreciate the value of human life will tend to see humans as merely a higher form of animal and will begin to treat others as such. So if you ever have disdain or discrimination or hate in your heart against anyone on that list, it's like nails against a chalkboard on this doctrine. Everyone has value. Everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone deserves dignity, respect, and care. Nice lens, God. Man. So that's one. That's easy. Okay, next one. Image bearers of God. Next, the doctrine of God's grace. It's another filter, another lens that we look through. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are all justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. All of us fall short. We are the enemy. We were dead, but through Christ we are alive. And it's so common for us to say, well, no, 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 not me. I'm not that bad. Look at this guy over here, right? I'm not that bad. Do you hear your heart say that? So James, chapter, in our chapter, in our message here, James 2, verse 10, says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. The bar is so high, Right? It is easy to compare ourselves to each other, but compared to God, we are all the same, right? We are sinners in need of a savior. We are all so far. And uh, my wife reminded me of a, a thing she had heard in youth group. They talked about, uh, imagine if you're like trying to jump to the moon, right? So we're jumping to the moon. This is what we're all trying to do. And, uh, and you're kind of looking next to each other and like, well, how far, how high are they jumping, right? How high can I jump on? I'm not going to do that. I embarrass myself. <laughs> it's not high. <laughs> um, but yeah, you look at like, oh, well, they didn't jump so high. And then you like, look over there. It's like, whoa, dang, they jumped high. But like, why are we paying attention to how high we are jumping? We should be paying attention to how are we supposed to get to the moon? It's so far. Derek says all the time that the ground is level at the cross. And just think about that. Um, We so often look, you know, next to us when we're sitting at the cross and comparing ourselves to that person. It's like, well, I'm not as bad as that person, but that person's super good. 
we're paying attention to the wrong thing, right? Instead of looking at each other, comparing to each other, our morality versus somebody else's, we're all far from God. The focus should be on how do we get back to God, and it's staring at us right in the face, Jesus on the cross. Tim Keller says this about the importance of the doctrine of grace. He says, A merely religious person who believes God will favor him because of his morality and respectability will ordinarily have contempt for the outcast. I worked hard to get where I am, and so can anyone else. That is the language of the moralist's heart. I'm only where I am by the sheer unmerited mercy of God. I'm completely equal with all other people. That is the language of the Christian's heart. A sensitive social conscience and a life poured out in deeds of mercy to the needy is the inevitable sign of a person who has grasped the doctrine of grace. And our last theological item, just in general, God's love for the poor and discriminated against. Throughout the Bible, you just see over and over again God's love for the poor. He has a heart for the weak, for the powerless, for the oppressed. Even in our passage today, James 2, verse 5, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? We don't have time to go through all the verses, but I mean, it's Old Testament, New Testament, epistles, history books, everything in the Bible. You'll see it everywhere. God has this upside-down kingdom where he chooses the poor. He chooses the disadvantaged. He chooses the minority. He chooses the opposite, pretty much, of what the world chooses by default. He chooses the needy over the self-made and the self-sufficient. So back to our question, why do we love God instead? We're made in the image of God. The the doctrine of God's grace and God's love for the poor, basically because God said so, is how I'll answer that question. So our last question today, the how, how do we love instead? So our passage today in James uses the word mercy a lot. And mercy can have a couple of meanings. Uh, We'll look at verse 13 where it says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Judgment without mercy as in like the legal sense. Mercy as forgiveness or reduction of punishment. And then shown to anyone who's not been merciful. That's mercy in like the, the compassionate sense, the works of mercy, actions, acts of mercy, showing mercy is this second sense. It's meeting physical needs. So think back to the story of the Good Samaritan. You know, Jesus had told this story. He turns to the teacher and asks him, you know, who was a neighbor to this man? And the teacher replied, he said, the one who showed him mercy, right? But the Good Samaritan didn't go and forgive the guy. He picked him up and addressed physical, actual needs. Those were the acts of mercy. And there's so many questions that come up for me in the midst of this. Okay, so how do I, like, what, what are the needs? How do, I, how do I meet them? Am I meeting them already? I don't know. So let's go through a few practical things that we can do to help us fight against this, you know, heart, this seed of discrimination and partiality, this bias in our hearts. First thing that I want to talk about is a, a change in authority. So, 
if you remember the early church, so Jesus ascended into heaven, you know, the Holy Spirit drops like a bomb on the disciples, and the church starts exploding, you know, out into the world, specifically in Jerusalem. And as the church is growing, so much cool stuff is happening. I mean, it's talking about that there was no one among the church that had a need because people were sharing, like, their possessions and their homes and all this stuff so that no one was without need. Super cool. Amazing. Um, but in Acts 6, we see kind of a problem brewing in the midst of all of this growth and cool stuff happening. And at the time in Jerusalem, there are two groups, two cultural groups of Jews. There's the Hellenistic Jews, and those were Greek-speaking. Those were the minority group. And then there was the Hebraic Jews. They spoke Aramaic or Hebrew, um, and they were the majority group. And so basically what was happening is... Uh, the Hellenistic Jews, they started to, uh, the Bible says they started to complain, some translations say murmur, that um, as they were distributing stuff to people in need, they were saying that well, but our people, some of our widows are not getting, you know, the, they're getting kind of shafted. They didn't use that word, but uh, getting shafted on the distribution. So like they kind of brought that to the leaders of the church and and. The way they handled this was fascinating. So they kind of looked at the problem and said, yeah, we got a problem here. Um, what do we do? You know, we could say, hey, reminder, everyone, you know, everyone's equal. Let's all do this. Instead, they did something um, that took a much better action, I think. Um, so they appointed a group of people to kind of oversee this ministry, this distribution ministry. And those seven men... Um, all had Greek names in Acts. They were all part of the Hellenistic group. So this was the minority group, the same group that was being discriminated against. They said, okay, we're going to put you guys in a place of authority to kind of help. And I don't know, there's a lot to read into this, but in my mind, at least the way that I would picture myself in this is like, maybe this just like accidentally happened. You know, if I'm like, I, I don't... I tried to do the, the best I could, but then here's where we're at, and this is not good, right? They put, they put the minority group in charge without dismissing or minimizing their complaint. They put them in a position of authority. You know, we've talked about the implicit bias, the uh, unconscious or accidental discrimination, if you don't intend to show favoritism, but sometimes it just still happens. That's just how our brains work. So maybe consider changing who has authority. Maybe God needs to have authority like over your heart instead of you, right? How much are you trusting your decision-making? If you're like me, it's probably too much. Maybe I need to put God in a position of authority to dictate the policy of my heart. Maybe instead of watching our cable news or reading our political blogs that are all the same talking points that John and Nathan were brought up 300 years ago, maybe we should be giving a voice to the neglected and listening to them. And it's, and it's not easy. Um, I haven't found it to be easy to listen and understand where they're coming from. Um, but the fact that we've got African-American brothers and sisters that are saying we got a problem, just dismissing it is not a very biblical option. 
So we've at least got some obligation to listen and understand and maybe put them in a position of authority over my heart to say, you might be missing it. You need to listen to this. So maybe change who's got authority over your heart. And lastly, uh, we've got some practical things that we do at OCC in our communities here. So we've got Mission House. They serve the homeless in our community with food, clothing, support. OCC serves meals once a month, sometimes more. Provides clothing and supplies. You kind of hear about that like in a Sunday morning. Carver Center, Dan talked about it earlier. We're doing the backpack thing. It's a community center uh, in the low-income housing area of Jacksonville Beach. We've been partnering with them. That's where kids can go and be cared for. We're going to get back to weekly tutoring there when school starts back up. Um, I don't know if you know Shelly Whitmire. She's actually here. Shelly, just raise your hand real quick. We've got her lovely little mug also uh, on a little slide here. There she is. Um, so, uh, so if, you're, if some of this stuff is just stirring in you, that there's someone you can talk to. I feel like for me, it's a lot of times like, okay, just tell me what to do, right? So if you walk up to Shelly and say, Shelly, tell me what to do, she'll be like, great, I've got all kinds of things. Um, uh, also, there's the, the uh, email, and it's kind of hard to see, groundswell at occjacks.com. You can kind of email that and ask questions. How can I get involved? Another thing we do at OCC, we've got uh, a thing called the Fellowship Fund. It is a, is a fund that's part of our budget, and also people have given directly to it um, that goes out to people in need. You know, situations have come up where people both inside and outside the church have just come on a hard time, and they've come to us, the, the church, and said, hey, can you help? And that Fellowship Fund enables us to say yes. And the way we handle that, you know, we review each case, and it's usually a yes and. Hey, here's the immediate need. We'll cover your rent for this month. But let's also meet and talk about kind of how we got here and if there's some ways we can make sure we try not to get here again. Your money, your time, your resources, those are things that, you know, if we're bearing the burdens right as the church, kind of sting a little bit. And the time's the one that stings for me. I feel like I have no time. You know, but maybe that's the indicator that, that that's the thing I need to, I'm holding too tightly and might need to give up a little bit. So our questions so far as we come to a close, do we discriminate? Yes. Why do we love instead? Because God said so. It's easy. How do we love instead? We meet practical needs. We show mercy. So, as we close today, how is your check engine light? Is it on? Maybe. Mine's on. <laughs> um, so James is, is this check engine light of a book. You know, the check engine light comes on and says, something's wrong, some more investigation is needed. This is not a message of, if you're not doing all of these things, you're a horrible person. I'm assuming you're horrible people, right? We all are. We already talked about this, Right? That's not what this message is. But the check engine light is an important one, and that's the role of James, really, in the Bible in some ways. He lays out how Christians ought to live, and if we're not living that way, more investigation is needed. So how, how is your heart reacting to the message today? You know, if it's, you know, it's, it's a weighty passage, 
You know, this sin of favoritism is subtle and sneaky, and God demands perfection. You know, so are, are you reacting with contempt or indifference? Just like, I don't care about any of this stuff. Can't even believe I came today. Um, if that's your reaction, what, what James is telling you, what the code is reading on the check engine light is you need to look at your faith. You might be just going through the motions, just coming to church. If there's not something in your heart that stirs for the needy, when you look through that lens that God has for us, you, you should look at your faith. Is it, is it, does God really have authority over your life? That's what, it look, that's what it means to have faith in Jesus. And secondly, some of us, I'm sure, like have our check engine light on and our code is reading that we're, we're just like feeling the weight of this passage, right? It's intimidating, overwhelming. Um, and you might be reading a couple of codes in your check engine light. You might be reading that, um, how do I put this? That you're trying to take too much of that weight on yourself, You're thinking, I just need to try harder. I need to do better. I need to love more people. I'm going to do, 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 all in an effort to show yourself worthy to God or maybe other people around you. And that's something that even Christians can fall into. But the weight of perfection is infinite. Like you guaranteed will be crushed. You can't do it. That's the whole, that's the whole deal. You can't do it. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus took the judgment we deserved and shows us mercy. We no longer have that weight. And then maybe for some of us, our code on our check engine light is reading um, maybe some of those kind of theological points. You know, when you look at your life, how you're practically living it, you're not always looking through those lenses. no longer have this weight and guilt. We are free. But what happens with that freedom, the way that God has designed it, is we slowly start to see how God sees. The Holy Spirit nudges our heart to action to show mercy because we've been shown mercy. So if there's something that's stirring in your heart, that is a sign that you, um, that God's, God's got you. If you feel nothing, then that's a sign that maybe like God's trying to get in. He's trying to knock at the door. If you've been saved by God, your, your check engine light might just be saying that maybe you've just forgotten that the weight's not on you. Maybe you've forgotten that you were poor, that you were lost. Your check engine light is telling you you gotta go back to him. You gotta let his mercy wash over us so that we can be free to love our neighbors, to show mercy, to meet the needs of the discriminated and oppressed, to listen to them humbly. Please stand with me as we pray and respond in worship. God, thank you for your message. 
Thank you that though, thank you that you're a God that challenges us, that doesn't just leave us to ourselves, because that would be a tragic thing. And God, we thank you for the glorious grace that you've given us in Jesus that lets us be free to love others, to honor you. It would be impossible without you. We thank you so much for that. We pray that you would remind us daily of how much we need you. And we pray that we would always, that our hearts would be just tuned to you and how you're speaking and how you're moving us to act. We pray just for trust in your word and your leadings by the Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.